The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. I had this history teacher back in high school, I believe it was freshman year, and he was known for two things, really. The first was that, at some point, he was going to drag out his slides, the slides that he made of photos he took when he and his wife uh, took a trip to Egypt. And I believe that he was very proud to own a copy of, I believe, the first National Geographic magazine that had the... uh, pictures of Howard Carter's um, unearthing of Tutankhamun's tomb, and uh, we were all warned that this would happen, and I think we were told you, you, you could basically sleep that day if you didn't want to see the slides. Um, the second thing he did was that towards the, I think the end of the year, uh, everyone had to choose a country, any country in the world, and do a report on it. And even then, I was stubborn, as my episode on stubbornness uh, gets into. Um, I was too busy uh, reading whatever I was reading and trying to write whatever I was trying to write. Um, And so I tried to be cute. I tried to think of the smallest country I could, because that would make for the easiest project. I think Monaco was on the list for a while. Um, But I ended up settling on... Iceland, by the most marvelous chance, I ended up settling on Iceland. And it happened that uh, part of your presentation, which you had to do in front of the whole class, had to be a sort of central thing uh, that was uh, important to this country or this culture. And uh, to my great surprise, I had never heard these stories before, I stumbled upon uh, some version Uh, Certainly not the originals. I don't think I could find those in the library in Geneva, Ohio, or even in Madison uh, nearby that had a larger library. I stumbled upon uh, some version of the Norse myths as told in the Poetic Edda, the poems that originated, you might say, around 1000 or uh, 1100 and weren't written down until 12 or 1300, I think the dates are. And the uh, the prose Edda, the Edda of Snorri Sturluson, the Icelandic historian who lived in the 13th century. And my God, um, this is something that uh, bowled me over. Um, the first thing actually to bowl me over was the name of a character in all of these stories named Odin. And fans of role-playing games from the late 1980s will recognize the name Odin 
from the American uh, version of the game Fantasy Star from, I believe, 1988 that was on the Sega Master System. And there was a character named Odin in that game. And, of course, as a kid, uh, 9 or 10 years old, I had no idea where the name Odin came from. But suddenly in high school, here he is as the uh, warrior god, the berserker god, the god who is hung from a tree and loses an eye and who is there at the end of the world and all of that. And I've been waiting to do this. I sort of did the Celtic myths because I knew that if I did the Norse myths first, I might not get back to the Celtic myths. Um, this is something that will occupy me on this podcast for some time. And I hope that listeners enjoy it as much as they did the episodes on Mesopotamian and Egyptian and Celtic mythology. Um, I think it's especially important because uh, Odin and Thor these days are more well-known from the movies, or they're more well-known from the uh, recent retellings, I think, uh, of Neil Gaiman in the past few years, who has sort of done his version of uh, putting the Norse myths all together under one cover. But I believe uh, there's a writer who, whose name I will mention here many times. His name is John Lindau. He's the author of a book called Norse Mythology, A Guide to the Gods, Heroes, Rituals, and Beliefs. Uh, a wonderful reference book if you're new to the subject or if uh, actually you're very familiar with it and just want a general reference book about it. His book is a good place to start. And he says at the very end that... Um, where he is suggesting translations of the originals. Um, he gives his suggestions, and then he says that while retellings, no matter how good, while, uh, while they can be useful in a way, um, in some sense, uh, if you're really interested in the subject, try to find a translation. Because I think this is especially true of, I guess, any religious scripture. And the Norse myths, while not religious scripture in the sense of being the texts of, of any people who are practicing something, the Norse myths were written down long after uh, what you might say heathen or pagan religion in Scandinavian Iceland died out. Um, they are basically the, you, you might say, the, the sacred texts of a people who no longer practiced the faith. And I think it is worth approaching those stories in the original, if you can, if only to see how strange they are in the original. How, how um, I guess if you want to wonder how or why stories about people like Odin or Thor uh, last, or why they influence someone like Tolkien, or somebody like uh, Richard Wagner as well. Um, if you want to wonder why that is, I think the key is in the nature, not just in the stories themselves, but in the way that they are told. And that is what I'm going to do here for the next probably year or so, is just uh, pick up my favorite of these stories and... Um, as with the other episodes in The Great Myths, just read from the translations 
uh, read from the commentaries, read from the um, read from the reference books. I will say right out that I don't think that I will get to the family sagas. The family sagas, it strikes me, are entirely different from what you might call the mythological sagas. The family sagas are wonderful to read. The saga of Greta the Strong and the saga of this guy or that guy, they're wonderful to read. I think a few episodes ago I referred to them as uh, 10th century or 12th century versions of The Godfather, where you have the settlement of Iceland going on, and people have settlements and farms, and there are just endless blood feuds and revenge stories. Um, or, or in the case of Snorri Sturluson's uh, historical work, uh, they are the history of the spread of Christianity in Scandinavia, and the, the tales of uh, of kings and uh, earls and all of that. Uh, very interesting in their own right, but at least to me, they do not hold a candle to the to what are now called uh, shorthand called the poetic Edda and the prose Edda, and a few other stories as well that we will be getting to, um, such as the Volsung saga and the saga of Rolf Kraki, I believe, and uh, some of the other stuff. Um, I will be focusing as much as I can on the myths, and I thought a good way to do that, uh, which probably would have been helpful when I was doing the Celtic myths, is to just sort of get a lay of the land, of what exactly we're talking about. First, I'll give a, a sense of the books that I'll be using. The, the reference books, uh, reference books, the first one I mentioned is by John Lindau, called Norse Mythology, A Guide to the Gods, Heroes, Rituals, and Beliefs. And the second is by Rudolf Simek, and it's just called A Dictionary of Northern Mythology. I believe that Andy Orchard has published a book, A Dictionary of, I think it may be just of Norse Mythology, uh, published under Cassell, Cassell's Dictionary of Norse Mythology. I haven't seen that book, but I can't imagine that uh, it will lead you astray. As I said, I think John Lindau's book is a better one for the literary material. I think Rudolf Symex goes also into the archaeology and is much more dense and isn't quite beginner-friendly. Now for the basic, uh, for the translations of the basic texts we'll be working with here, for the prose Edda, again, probably the best one to start with, is the one published by Penguin Classics and uh, by Jesse Byock. And what Jesse Byock does is he takes the blocks and blocks of prose that makes up the prose edit, of course, um, and he gives them headings and chapter numbers and all of these things that aren't in the original but make it extremely easy to follow along if you've never read these stories. For instance, the, the long opening section of the prose edda called the Gilfaginning, Gilfaginning uh, is 55 chapters uh, by his numbering, and they all have good uh, uh, chapter titles and so you know what's going on. If you want to get the whole thing though, and again, like Rudolf Symek's book, it's a it's slightly more imposing. There are no uh, 
it's, it's a little harder to read because you don't have those guideposts along the way. But I think it is a better translation and it is more thorough. Is uh, It's just called Edda and it's translated by Anthony Fox, F-A-U-L-K-E-S. And that is published by Everyman's Library. And what he does as well is that he not only has the Gilfaginning, which is the basic uh, mythological stuff, um, as well as the Skald Skarpamal, which is more uh, mythological stories, more brief ones. But he also includes the entirety, I believe, the entirety of a section called Hatatal, which is a, you might say, an encyclopedia of verse forms that the uh, poets would have used, the bards would have used at the time. If we're looking for the poetic edda, the one that I will be reading from here uh, will be by Andy Orchard, and that was just published a few years ago by the Penguin Classics as The Elder Edda, a book of Viking lore. And let me see if it gives the, the book that he did here. Um, yes, the Cassell Dictionary of Norse Myth and Legend. So that is the other um, that is the other reference book to use. The other translation that I have of the Poetic Edda, which is actually the first one that I ever found, and that I still do enjoy, is from Oxford World's Classics, and it is translated by Caroline Larrington. And I thought that one way to do this, one way to go through these myths, is to start tonight by reading from the first poem that uh, is in the Poetic Edda called the Voluspa. And as I've mentioned, uh, I've been hinting at this uh, for a while now that I'll be getting to it. As I mentioned in a few episodes past, uh, the Voluspa is something that we lack in uh, not just in the mythologies that I've dealt with so far, the Babylonian, the Egyptian, and the Celtic, but I think in most, um, it's a very unique uh, document. Let me get the, the full uh, page count here, or stanza count, you might say. In 164 stanzas by Caroline Larrington's count, or no, no, that's the next one, in 66 stanzas, uh, and each stanza is roughly translated as between four and six lines long. Um, what we have is, and in Caroline Larrington's version, it is uh, not even 10 pages long. We have the beginning of the world, uh, the stories of the gods, and we have the end of the world. We have Ragnarok. The whole thing, a history of the world as told in less than 10 pages. I know of nothing else like that in uh, mythology, in writing, and in poetry of this kind. Perhaps it exists, perhaps it was done, um, but uh, not in a way that, that the resultant text, you might say, was uh, made so central to uh, the surviving literature as the Voluspa is. And and I think that's very unique. And I think it's something that we should start with. I think we should start with it also because uh, John Lindau in his book makes the very good point that 
the, the notion of time in these stories is very important. And you can basically, you can basically almost, almost make an index of these stories and read them in chronological order, sort of like, uh, sort of like editing your own version of Pulp Fiction and putting it, putting the stories back together in some sort of chronological order, because they don't exist that way. Uh, throughout the stories, throughout the poems, throughout the many books, you have a story about Thor here, a story about Odin there, a story about Loki here. Um, and it takes some time to get your bearings. And so what I will do in this first episode is I will read the Voluspa, which gives you the story from of the world from the beginning to the end. And then in upcoming episodes, what I will do is uh, read a cor read the corresponding section in the Voluspa, for instance, about the beginning of the world, and then read another version of the beginning of the world from the prose edda and maybe from another place, and work our way through the Voluspa a second time, uh, along the way filling in all the gaps, and eventually at the end, uh, ending with Ragnarok all over again and along the way hearing my favorite stories about all of these gods and sort of tying them all together. Because as John Lindau says, you can take, uh, if you know your stories well enough, if you have a copy of John Lindau's book, you will be able to. You can basically separate out the stories of Norse mythology as taking place either in the distant past, uh, before the creation of the world, the near past, which would be from the creation of the cosmos, until, as he puts it, um, the creation of the races of dwarfs and humans, and then what you might call the mythological present, all the things that happened, you might say, uh, after the creation of the races of the dwarfs and humans, but before the end of the world. And that is basically, I think, the, the route that we will follow. Um, and it will be a great time, I think. And what I wanted to do first, though, is read a tiny bit about these myths and about uh, when they were written down and what they really reflect uh, from a few places. The first is just noting something from a timeline. This comes from the Penguin Historical Atlas of the Vikings, just to get a sense of bearing of what time frame we're looking at here. Um, the usual start to the quote-unquote Viking Age is usually given as the year 793, which is when the Vikings first plundered the uh, monastery at Lindisfarne, and 795, the first recorded Viking raids on Scotland and Ireland. Now, about 600 years earlier, 700 years earlier, we have the account by the Roman historian Tacitus in his Germania about uh, these strange people who live up in the area that we call Germany today and uh, their rights and their beliefs and uh, what he had heard about them. Um, and we also have the account, I can't remember which historian it is, which Roman historian it is who gives it. It may be uh, Tacitus as well. 
of the uh, Battle of the Tudorburg Forest between the Romans and the Germans and the, uh, the total annihilation of the Roman forces and what happens, I believe that was in 9 AD, wasn't it? And what happens nine or ten years later when the Romans find the remains of that battle uh, again after defeating the Germans and making it that far back into into German lands and they find altars to the uh, Germanic gods and they find uh, the remains of their countrymen there and but but all of that is in the very early first century what we're dealing with now is in the late 700s so there's a huge gap of time that I won't really be dealing with but which is worth looking at um, there is a book let me get the author's name right I think the book that you would want to go to for that time period is called The Early Germans and that is by Malcolm Todd and I'm sure that uh, there are other books on the topic as well if you want to go there but we'll be dealing with the beginning of the Viking Age as such so that is the year 793-795 just to give a smattering of dates here um, in 832, uh, an Armagh is raided three times in a month. Um, in 841, um, or in 839 to 840, the Vikings winter in Ireland for the first time. In the year 841, the Vikings establish a base at Dublin. In the year 850, the Vikings winter for the first time in England. Uh, in the year circa 870 to 930, the Vikings settle uh, Iceland. Over in France, let's see, uh, in 885 to 886, the Vikings besiege Paris. In, but then, uh, very quickly, after the besieging of Paris, um, in 911, uh, the Viking named Rollo founds Normandy. In the years 914 to 936, the Vikings occupy Brittany. Um, in the year 1071, the Normans who used to be Vikings, but now they're supposedly uh, uh, Norman French, uh, they expand into southern Italy, and on and on. Um, and then there's more in the timeline about the Vikings going further east, uh, encountering uh, uh, Byzantium, leaving their mark in Hagia Sophia, I believe on one of the pillars in there. Um, of raiding down to Moorish Spain and getting into the Mediterranean. Um, all of this stuff, what, what we find is, yes, uh, the Vikings were uh, raping and pillaging and plundering, but they also settled down pretty damn quick. And they knew what they were doing, and they knew how to uh, get what they wanted coming out from their bases in Scandinavia and spreading outward. Um, I don't know if the old theory still holds that uh, farming land in Scandinavia was so scarce that uh, many of the young men in the area uh, had nothing to do and no land to gain, and so they got out and somehow uh, invented these ships that allowed them to do so, and the rest is history. Um, 
And we also have the, the story of the, uh, the settlement of Iceland, so that by the year 1000, the, the, around the year 1000, the, the famous, uh, you might say, meeting at the Althing, where it is decided that Iceland will be a Christian country. Um, the, at the top, at least, it is said it will be Christian. It is decided that it will be Christian. Um, even as uh, pagan things can continue to go on. And so it's believed, for instance, that what I'm about to read tonight, the Voluspa, was composed, not written, but composed around the year 1000, so that we can say that the material goes back before the year 1000. But basically everything else after that was uh, was written down much later. As with the Celtic myth that I read earlier, and I will just get uh, John Lindau's way of saying this first, um, if I can find it. Yes, he says, thus Scandinavian mythology was with virtually no exception, with virtually no exception, written down by Christians. And there is no reason to believe that Christianity in Iceland was any different from Christianity anywhere else in Western Europe during the High Middle Ages. And he prefaces that remark by talking about the conversion, uh, the conversion basically of the Vikings to Christianity. And by, when I say the Vikings, uh, when I say Vikings wintered in England, and then Vikings wintered in Ireland. I mean, there are just so many parties of them going around. It obviously is not the same, uh, the same group. Um, he says this, uh, the conversion in Iceland followed a fascinating course. Missionaries were active in the, late, in the latter decades of the 10th century, but so were their pagan opponents. Olaf Tryggvason, whose role in the conversion was championed by 12th century and later Icelandic monks, took hostage some wealthy young Icelandic travelers, and there was further resolve among Christians in Iceland to complete the conversion. However, as the two sides approached the Althing in Iceland in the year 1000, it appeared that war would break out. Finally, it was agreed that a single arbiter should choose one religion for the entire land, and the law speaker, Thorgeir, a pagan, was chosen. After spending a night under his cloak, he emerged and decreed that Iceland should be Christian, and so it was. At first, some pagan practices were permitted, if carried out in secret, but later even this permission was rescinded. However, for reasons that are no longer quite clear, the old stories about the gods were not lost on Iceland, and this for reasons that are no longer quite clear, this is the same question of how the old stories were not quite lost in Ireland either. But in Iceland, um, the material is, uh, there is more of it, and you might say it is more complete and even more rich. Uh, John Lindau goes on to say that poems about them, poems about the gods and the old stories, lived on an oral tradition to be recorded more than two centuries after the conversion. 
some mythological poems may actually have been composed by Christians in Iceland, and Snorri Sturluson, who lived in the 13th century, made extensive use of the mythology in his writings. And that's when he says, thus Scandinavian mythology was, with virtually no exception, written down by Christians. And further down the page he says, some lay persons of higher status were also apparently literate, at least in Icelandic, but all writing, all writing, whether in the international language of the church or in the vernacular, was the result of the conversion to Christianity, which brought with it the technology of manuscript writing. So, as with the episodes on the Celtic myths, these episodes on Norse myths will primarily be about the literature, not the archaeology. This will be a story of the literary finds, what remains of the stories, and the stories were not written by uh, still practicing pagans. They were written down by Christians. Um, here, uh, John Lindau talks briefly about the poetry of, uh, especially of the of the Eddic poems, but also of other ones. He says, each Eddic poem had its own history before it was finally written down, and there has been much speculation about the dates and the origins of the various poems. Most scholars believe strongly in the possibility that some of the mythological poems were composed after Ireland's conversion to Christianity by antiquarians, secure enough in their Christianity to be able to compose in the old form about the gods. The Thrymskavida is the poem most often mentioned in this context, but there are many others. On the other hand, there is no way to tell whether a poem, even one that looks as, quote, young as the Thrymskavida, might have been composed during the Viking Age, or even theoretically earlier, and changed in oral transmission, so as to look like the product of a Christian antiquary. Whatever the original dates and origins of the mythological Eddic poems, it seems to me that the similarities outweigh the differences and that the picture of the gods are fairly consistent. He says, in form, the Eddic poems are short stanzaic poems that rely chiefly on two meters. The, and I won't try to, to do the Icelandic words here, the old way of composing and the song meter. The old way of composing is equivalent to the verse form used in Old English, Old High German, and Old Saxon, which were the other Germanic languages in which verse has been preserved. Although the division into stanzas appears to be a Scandinavian innovation. Like the poems in the second half of the Codex Regius of the Poetic Edda, the Codex Regius is the manuscript in which the Poetic Edda is preserved. Uh, like the poems in the second half of the Codex Regius, verse in Old English and Old High German is about heroes. And even the major surviving examples of Old Saxon, which is a verse life of Christ called the Hiliand, exhibits heroic diction. Heroic Eddic poetry, then, especially when it uses the old way of composing, appears to be the heir of common Germanic poetry. We may also surmise that there was verse about gods 
during the common Germanic period, but only only Iceland has preserved any. Only Iceland has preserved any of it, and aren't we lucky for that? Um, and anyone who picks up a book about how to learn Old English and then how to learn um, Old Norse, you will see that, no, they aren't a match, but uh, you can see how it may be similar. Now, if we go to the Voluspa, let me see here. What does John Lindo have to say about the Voluspa before we read it? He says, the Voluspa is the first poem of the Codex, Codex Regius of the Poetic Edda, either because its synopsis of the mythology, from the creation to the destruction of the cosmos to its rebirth, invited the compiler to place it first, or because the compiler thought of it as one of the Odin poems. The second poem in the Poetic Edda, the Havamal, also deals with Odin, and perhaps that was the reason. See, talks about a separate version of the poem existing, um, and and here is the uh, here is just a summary of what happens. This is worth having, especially if you haven't heard this poem before. It's worth having this in your mind beforehand, uh, hearing this summary before hearing the poem itself. It says Voluspa is spoken by a seeress under the compulsion of the Balfodur or of Odin himself. She refers to herself sometimes in the first and sometimes in the third person. This is a seeress sort of under the influence, and um, one of the notes compares this to the, the ancient sibyls uh, of, of Greek and Roman tradition, or uh, even of the, uh, of the uh, seeress at Delphi, who is sort of sitting in that crag and uh, inhaling the, f the sort of drugged fumes and telling the future. Um, and this is the, this is the person who is telling the story of the world from the beginning to the end. It says, she refers to herself sometimes in the first and sometimes in the third person. She remembers those giants who raised her before the world had been created. The sons of Burr raised up the earth and the gods created time and reckoning. They had tools and they enjoyed gold until three giant maidens disrupted their joy. Upon the council of the gods, Motsungnir was made the mightiest of dwarfs, and the dwarfs made human beings out of the earth. A catalog of dwarfs occupies the next several stanzas, with somewhat differing versions in various redactions of the poem. And that, is that true? Is that where... Um, that where the name Gandalf appears as, as Wood Elf. Um, and it's where Tolkien got the name uh, Gandalf. The Aesir endow Ask and Embla with life forces. And at this point, the poem turns from cosmogony to cosmology and describes the world tree and the Norns. The Aesir Vanir War, the War of the Gods, occupies further stanzas, and other ones may may allude to the building of the walls at, of Asgard. The Codex Regius, but not the other version of the Voluspa, there follows here the story of Baldur's death, the death of Odin's son Baldur, and the aftermath of that climactic event. 
There follows a description of the moral and cosmic disintegration that characterized Ragnarok, and then the deaths of the gods and the demise of the cosmos itself. The last stanzas, however, strike a hopeful note. The seeress sees the earth arise for a second time, and the Aesir, presumably a new generation of them, will assemble and they will find physical and narrative links to their past. Unsown fields will grow, and Odin's son Balder and Hod, the uh, guy who killed Balder, in some, in some stories it is Loki who kills him, or puts him up to it, um, these two enemies uh, will dwell together, presumably reconciled. Ritual activity will be resumed, and a stanza to be found only in the other version of the Veluspa reports that the powerful one will come from on high, he who rules all, but a dragon will also come flying with corpses in its grip. Now, the seeress says, she must sink, and the poem ends. And now that I read that out loud, uh, for someone who has never heard the story, I'm not sure that that really... <laughs> I'm not sure that really helps, um, but it gives you a sense of how much is covered within uh, not even 10 pages. Um, and here's the interesting thing, he says. Um, in the Codex Regius, the onset of Ragnarok follows immediately after and appears to be a direct result of Baldur's death. In the other version of the poem, Ragnarok seems somewhat unmotivated doesn't have a cause. But in that version, the text sends to the earth the powerful one, he who rules all, which looks much like an intrusion of the Christian God. Indeed, even without this stanza, there is much in the poem that is reminiscent of Christianity, and in part because it seems, and in part because it seems to indulge in millennial thinking, because it does have the end of the world. And because of that, scholars have been inclined to date it to the last decades of the 10th century. This dating is uncertain, and attempts to assign the poem's origin to a specific location are even more uncertain. Even still, Voluspa is one of the most powerful and eloquent monuments of Scandinavian mythology, with a beauty of expression that is seldom matched, and an overarching view of the mythology that is also peerless. And in Snorri Sturluson's prose edda, he quotes from the Voluspa constantly. And according to John Lindau, anyhow, Snorri's otherwise eloquent summary of the mythology in the Gilfaginning owes much to the Voluspa, but seems clumsy when set alongside of it. So if we have the idea, this is something that I brought up too late, I think, in the episodes on Celtic mythology. If we have the idea that the the idea of a female seeress, of a of a sibyl, of a sort of uh, drugged woman going into into visions or trance uh, under the auspices of Odin's authority, if we can trace the image of that, and I'll read from notes in later episodes about this, to the classical sibyls. And if we can say that the very end of the poem, or just the idea itself of there being an apocalypse, especially if we do date this poem to the, to the turn of the year 1000, 
if we put all of that also down to Christian influence, I don't know that that is such a bad thing. I think it's still remarkable how much strangeness and how much uh, of its own thing still shines through here. Because there's that strange thing that we human beings do when we become attached to a story, a story about ourselves or of our country, but more often uh, the stories attached to our religious beliefs. Uh, we come to believe that these things uh, emerged from and existed in a vacuum, that they were never influenced by anything other than the supposed divine inspiration that uh, caused them to come into being. Um, when it actually turns out, I think, that if you take a look at how religion and storytelling and folklore and what we call mythology actually works, uh, the process is nothing else but um, absorption of your surrounding area, a reaction to your surrounding area, what's going on around you, uh, borrowing from that surrounding place, whatever it is, their stories or the stories of other people. And then the, the sort of gathering of that, the taking of it, what is valuable to you, and the discarding of what isn't, and the editing and the redacting, and the making of something new, something that is your own, but still very clearly reflects the influence of something else. I'm not really sure why it is that we cling to an idea of purity, because I think that is finally the most erroneous idea of all, and especially nowadays, and I suppose um, this isn't a very old idea, it doesn't have anything to do just with nowadays, but it certainly appears nowadays, especially with the Norse material, um, the idea that anything at all is pure and unsullied. Um, the whole idea of these things, of religion and of the stories that we tell each other, the whole reason that they continue to live on at all is because they are flexible, because they are changeable, because they are able to take in new influences and they are able to adapt to different times, different situations, and different people. But so much for that. We can talk more about that later. And I will just read one more tiny little bit about the Voluspa before I get started. For those of you who really want to get into all of this, there is an edition of the Poetic Edda published by Oxford University Press and uh, edited with a translation, introduction, and commentary by Ursula Dronke, that's D-R-O-N-K-E. And she published an edition of the Poetic Edda, I think in three or four volumes, all of which are prohibitively expensive to anyone, either not in the field, who can probably get them at a discount, or someone with a lot of money. But I was able to find an edition of it uh, through interlibrary loan, and it's the only edition that has the Icelandic or the, the Old Norse on the left and the English on the right. And with, I would guess, 
more than a hundred pages of notes and commentary. But just one thing, one little bit here, is worth uh, quoting here. Uh, based on the summary that I just gave from the beginning to the end, with classical and Christian allusions in there, this is also what uh, Ursula Dranke has to say about the Voluspa. It says, the poem is composed in a sophisticated form, not elsewhere recorded in Germanic, representing an idealized performance of a heathen vulva. The form reproduces the mediumistic technique of communication with a spirit informant, involving the alternation of personae of I, the performing vulva, and she, the spirit informant, who in this instance, and perhaps traditionally, is herself a vulva. The poet, of course, explains nothing, and his artifice may well have proved puzzling in the centuries when the Eddic manuscripts were being written. And that is important to note here, because if you feel lost or confused, or this is just an onrush of stuff, uh, at least by Ursula Dranke's uh, estimation, uh, so would have been the original audience. This isn't something, I've mentioned other myths as being sort of their versions uh, of the, the Kuhalan myths and the Celtic material as sort of being their versions of action, of action movies. I think of Thomas Mallory's Mort d'Arthur with all of the mistaken identities and all of the action scenes and all of that, which almost seem like their versions not just of action movies, but also of maybe even romantic comedies. In this sense, the Voluspa is none of that. It is maybe the wasteland of its time. It is something that uh, was meant to be a little strange, even for its contemporaries. And it makes sense, then, that Snorri Sturluson later on uh, used stanzas while retelling the story in a slightly more uh, easy, slightly more easily handled prose version. Uh, Ursula Dranke says, certainly Snorri simplifies the vulva and her information to a single figure I in his citations. And a reviser, perhaps Snorri himself, has removed from the text a sig the significant contrast between she and I. Together, with the tradition of the seance form and its multiple voices, almost shamanic here, the poet inherited the convention of ambivalent speech and seeming dislocation of thought and tense by which the vulva, the pythoness, or the sibyl, challenged the minds of her audience. The poet has refined these expressional traditions with a poetic mastery paralleled only in the greatest of the heathen skalds, the heathen poets, the heathen storytellers. In a later Christian century, both misunderstanding and scholarly impatience with a seemingly disjointed sequence of ideas have provoked, have provoked attempts to, quote, normalize and reorganize the poem, attempts made both by Snorri in his prose version and the later reviser of the central section of the text. And finally, she says, For the huge scope of his poem, the poet had drawn upon a very great number of legends, 
Few of those he tells in full, but pointedly selects from them, alludes to them, and adapts them. This again is provocation to his hearers and his readers, who know f who know the fuller or the preferred versions of these stories, and which the poet does not want to interfere with his text. And that is the last uh, note that I'll leave here before reading the actual poem itself, is that if we imagine the poem being composed, not yet written, but composed around the year 1000, and you remember the summary that I just read to you and how much is packed in there, and you remember it even more from, the, from when I'm about to read it right now, and you get a sense of how many, indeed, how many a very great number of legends, as Ursula Dronke says, are tied in here, compacted in here, pressed into service, into action here, alluded to, suggested, and uh, adapted. Um, what that suggests is that even by the year 1000, even on the cusp of conversion, there, there was already a huge catalog, a huge library of traditional stories, not written down but known through oral tradition that people relied upon and that people would have been able to respond to when they heard a performance of the poem that I am about to read. So let's finally get to the poem itself. Um, as I mentioned, the translation that I will be using from the readings that I do from the Poetic Edda come from the recent Penguin Classics edition uh, translated by Andy Orchard under the title The Elder Edda, A Book of Viking Lore. And because the Voluspa especially is something like the Book of Job or the Tao Te Ching, something that is really special to the language that it, it is expressed in, um, where the language is given an almost impossible power that is very hard to translate. Um, there are certainly many other translations of this poem out there, and if readers have a favorite of their own, do send me a message and let me know what that is. But for me, it is Andy Orchard. And what I will try to do, because the Norse language does include what are called kennings, sort of uh, formulaic uh, place fillers for the, uh, for the meter of the poetry, and uh, that are also kind of strange, uh, strange ways of describing things, at least to our ears. Um, for instance, in the first stanza, corpse father, it says corpse father, instead of Odin, um, and there are many others uh, throughout the poem. Um, the aged one is Odin, war father is Odin, warlord is Odin. I will try to just incorporate the, uh, the phrase that is used, such as warlord, and then give the, the description of what that kenning means um, as I read. I think the kenning for ocean is uh, 
water horse or something like that, or, or ship is something like water horse. But I will try to weave that in as I go, as seamlessly as possible. This is the Voluspa. Uh, sit back and enjoy this one. A hearing, I ask, of all holy offspring, the higher and lower of Heimdall's brood. Do you want me, corpse father Odin, to tally up well ancient tales of folk from the first I recall? I recall those giants, born early on, who long ago brought me up. Nine worlds I recall, nine wood-dwelling witches, the famed tree of fate down under the earth. It was early in ages when Ymir made his home, Ymir the primordial giant. There was neither sand nor sea nor cooling waves, no earth to be found nor heaven above, a gulf beguiling, nor grass anywhere. Before Burr's sons, this is Odin and his brothers, before Burr's sons brought up the lands, they who molded famed Middle-earth, the sun shone from the south and the stones of the hall. Then the ground grew with the leek's green growth. Sun, moon's escort, flung from the south her right arm round heaven's rim. Sun did not know where she had a hall. The stars knew not where they had stations. Moon did not know what might be had, what might he had. Then all the powers went to their thrones of destiny, high holy gods, and deliberated this. To night and her children they gave their names. Morning they called one, another midday, afternoon and evening, to tally up the years. The Aesir assembled on action field, they who built high-timbered temples and altars. They set down forges, fashioned treasures, shaped tongs, and fabricated tools. They played board games in the meadow. They made merry. In no way for them was there want of gold, until there came three ogres' daughters, vastly mighty from giant's domain. And here becomes here comes the tally of the dwarfs here. Then all the powers went to their thrones of destiny, high holy gods, and deliberated this. Who should shape the troop of dwarfs from Bremir's blood, from Blind's limbs? There was Motosnir, made most esteemed of all the dwarfs, and Durin next. Many man-shaped forms they made, dwarfs from the earth, as Durin told. New moon, moon wane, north and south, east and west, all stealer, dawdler, trembler, grumbler, tubby, old salt, friend and friendly, great-grandpa, mead wolf, swig and wand elf, as I mentioned wand elf in the original is Gandalf. All of these, depending on the translation you use, they will either just present the names as they are, such as Gandalf, or they will try to translate it as Andy Orchard does here. Um, swig and wand elf, wind elf, urge, knowing and daring, 
spurt, wise and bright, corpse and new counsel, now the dwarfs, Reagan and cunning counsel, have I reckoned aright. Filer, wedger, newfound, needler, handle, slogger, craftsman, waster, swift, horn-bearer, famed and puddle, mudplain, warrior, oaken shield. Time it is to reckon back to praiser, the dwarfs and dawdlers band for the children of men, those who sought from halls of stone the dwellings of mud-plains on soily flats. There was dripper and eager for strife, gray, mound-treader, shelter-plain, glowing artisan, stainer, crooked-fin, great-grandpa. Elf and yingvi, oaken shield, much wise and frosty, fin and beguiler. There will remain in memory, while the world lasts, the lineage of praiser properly listed. You might wonder why all of those names um, recall the uh, the Celtic stuff that I just reviewed and the uh, links to my own tradition, the uh, list of lineages and names and places within the, uh, within the Hebrew Bible. Um, there seems to be some need within works like this to preserve the lists, to preserve lists of names, um, even if by the time they're written down or performed, um, the precise meaning or motive for having this catalog of names is lost. And remember what I said, especially if you're wondering where this is all going. Um, remember that, uh, by all accounts, this was probably even strange to the audience that uh, first heard it, performed, and first read it when it was finally written down. Now we return to the Voluspa proper. This is what it says. Until there came three from that company, powerful and pleasant, Aesir to a house, they found on land, lacking vigor, ash and embla, free of fate. And this is when the gods breathe life into the, uh, the ash and the embla, and, uh, well, this is what they do. Uh, breath they had not, ash and embla did not have breath. Breath they had not, energy they held not, no warmth, nor motion, nor healthy looks. Breath gave Odin, energy gave Honer, warmth gave Lodur, and healthy looks. An ash I know stands, Yggdrasil by name, a high tree, drenched with bright white mud. From there come the dews that drop in the dales, it always stands green over destinies well. From there comes maidens, knowing much, three from the lake that stands under the tree. Destiny they called one, becoming the second, they carved on wood tablets, and shall be the third. Laws they laid down, lives they chose for the children of mankind, the fates of men, and those three, I believe, are the Norns, she remembers the war, and here is the instance of she, going from the first person I, third person she, as, we, as was mentioned. She remembers the war 
the first in the world, when they stabbed at gold draught with many spears, and in the hall of the high one, Odin, they burned her body. Three times they burned the one thrice born, often over again, yet she lives still. They called her brightness when she came to their homes, a witch who could foretell. She knew the skill of wands. She made magic where she could, made magic in a trance. She was always a delight to a wicked woman. Then all the powers went to their thrones of destiny, high holy gods, and deliber deliberated this, whether the Aesir were obliged to render tribute, and all the gods were obliged to pay the price. Odin flung his spear, cast it into the host. Still that was the war, the first in the world. The shield wall was shattered of the fortress of the Aesir, which is Asgard. The Vanir, with war spells, trampled the battlefield. Then all the powers went to their thrones of destiny, high holy gods, and deliberated this. Who had mixed the whole sky with mischief, or given Odd's girl, Odd's girl is Freya, to the giant's kin, who had promised this goddess to the giants? Thor alone threw blows there, bursting with rage. He seldom sits still when he hears such things said. Oaths were trampled, words and assurances, every binding pledge that it passed between. She knows that Heimdall's hearing is hidden under that brilliant, holy tree. She sees a river surge with a muddy stream from a corpse father that is Odin's pledge. Do you know yet, or what? Here comes the the refrain of that question, do you know yet, or what? Alone she sat out when the aged one, Odin, came, the dread one of the Aesir, which is Odin, and she looked in his eye. What do you ask me? Why do you try me? I know it all, Odin, where you hid your eye in the much-famed fountain of Mimir. Mimir sips mead every morning, from Corpse Father's Pledge. Do you know yet, or what? War Father picked for her rings and circlets. He had backwise tidings and wands of prophecy. She saw widely and widely beyond over every world. She saw Valkyries come from widely beyond, ready to ride to the people of the gods. Shall be bore one shield, brandisher another, battle, war, wand maid, and spear brandisher. Now are reckoned warlords' ladies, ready to ride over earth, Valkyries. I saw for Baldur, the blood-stained god, Odin's son, his fate fully settled. There stood blooming above the ground, meager, mighty, beautiful mistletoe. And from that plant, that seemed so slender, Hod learned to shoot a dangerous dart of harm. Baldur's brother was quickly born. That son of Odin learned to kill one night old. And some months from now, I will tell the story of the death of Baldur, and you will see how, um, how slender a retelling those four lines are on the death of Odin's son. 
by by Hod and the birth of one of Odin's new children, who only seems to be born to get revenge for his brother. Um, he never washed hands nor combed his head till he put to the pyre Baldur's foe. But Frigg lamented in Fenhalls for slain Hall's woe. Do you know yet or what? Then Vaili's war bands were woven, Vaili, Loki's son. Rather hard were the bonds, they were made out of his own guts. She saw a prisoner prostrate under Kettle Grove, in the likeness of Loki, ever eager for harm. And there sits Sigyn over her husband, but she feels little glee. Do you know yet, or what? A river flows from the east through venom valleys with knives and swords. Stern is its name. There stood to the north, on moon-wane plains, a hall of gold of Sindri's line. A second stood, on never-cooled, the beer hall of a giant, the one called Brimir. A hall she saw, standing far from the sun, on dead bodies' strands, its door face, its doors face north. Venom drops flowed in through the roof holes. That hall is plated from serpents' spines. She saw there, wading through heavy currents, men false sworn and murderous men, and those who gull another's faithfulest girl. Their spite striker sucks the bodies of the dead. A wolf tore men. Do you know yet, or what? E east sat an old crone on iron wood, and suckled there the seed of Fenrir, the monstrous Fenrir wolves, the wolves of Fenrir. From them all shall emerge a certain one, a grabber of the moon in monstrous guise, one of the Fenrir wolves will swallow the moon at Ragnarok. He is filled with the lifeblood of doomed men, reddens the power's dwellings with ruddy gore. The sunbeams turn black the following summer, all weather woeful, do you know yet, or what? And it strikes me reading this out loud for the first time, that if we think of this as being a performance before it was ever written down, it almost seems that what we have here in print is uh, are the notes, um, are the sketches, perhaps. Um, I can get all of this read within a half hour or so, but can we imagine an entire night where a uh, poet or a storyteller has this poem in his mind and all of these sub-stories in his mind, his or her mind, and he comes to the the uh, abbreviated versions of each tale, and depending on the night and depending on how he or she uh, happened to be feeling, uh, he will come to the abbreviated version of the story and then tell it, and then go back to the script that I am reading now. It's an interesting idea, although I have no idea if that is something that would have actually happened, but it strikes me that way right now. Um, do you know yet, or what? There sat on a grave mound, and plucked at a harp, the giantess's herdsman, happy Egether. Over him 
there crowed in gallows wood a bright red cock whose name is much wise over the aesir there crowed golden comb who wakes the warriors at host father's home another crows beneath the earth a soot red cock in the halls of hell garm howls loud before looming cave the bond will break and the ravenous one will run much lore she knows i see further ahead of the powers fate implacable of the victory gods brothers will struggle and slaughter each other and sisters sons spoil kinship's bonds it's hard on earth great whoredom axe age blade age shields are split wind age wolf age before the world crumbles no one shall spare another i wonder how much of this stanza especially yeats knew for the second coming um things fall apart the center cannot hold it's hard on earth great whoredom i can see yeats cheering along with this bit here um memes sons sport the wood of destiny which is yggdrasil the wood of destiny is kindled at the ancient sounding horn heimdall blows loud the horn is aloft and odin speaks with mim's head the head that he uh, preserved with herbs and such and speaks to and which uh, speaks prophecy back to him that is also elaborated more in uh, snorri's version of the tale the standing ash of yggdrasil shudders and here we are heading to ragnarok the standing ash of yggdrasil shudders the aged tree groans and the giants break free all are afraid on the paths of hell before Surt's kin swallows it up Surt being a fire giant what's with the aesir what's with the elves all giants domain groans the aesir hold counsel the dwarves murmur before their stone doors lords of the cliff wall do you know yet or what garm now howls loud before looming cave the bond will break and the ravenous one run much lore she knows i see further ahead of the powers fate implacable of the victory gods hrim the giant drives from the east holds his shield ahead great wand great wand the world serpent it's a good name a good kenning there great wand the world serpent writhes in giant wrath the serpent strikes waves the eagle screams pale beaked rips bodies and nail boat breaks free a vessel journeys from the east muspel's troops will come over the waters while loki steers thank you very much loki all the monstrous offspring accompany the ravenous one the brother of bylaced the uh, brother of bylaced is loki the brother of bylaced is with them on the trip cert comes from the south with what damages branches what damages branches these kennings are kind of little puzzles fire damages branches and so cert comes from the south with the fire that damages branches and there shines from his sword the son of corpse gods rock cliffs clash 
troll wives crash, warriors tread hell roads, and heaven is rent. Then there comes forth Lean, Lean is Frigg, uh, Odin's wife. Then there comes forth Lean a second sorrow, when Odin goes to fight the wolf, and Bailey's bright bane against Surt. Bailey's bane is Frey, and Bailey's bright bane against Surt. Then, then is when Frigg's beloved must fall. And the wonderful doom-laden sense of, uh, of so much of the Norse material, you think that it can't get much worse, um, but they don't hold back. Uh, even Odin has to die. All of these gods uh, have to die. Even as gods, not even the euhemerized versions of them, that idea uh, that we had in the Celtic myths where the gods are sort of um, knocked down a few pegs and just made into superhumans. In this poem, they are still gods. Uh, there is still the end of the world, and these gods will die. Um, make what you want of that world outlook. Um, then there comes the great son of victory, father of Odin, the, the son named Vidar, to fight against the slaughtering beast, the Fenrir wolf. And with his hand, he sends his sword to the heart of, of Hvedrung's son, which is Loki, and then his father is abandoned, so at least Odin's son gets revenge for his father. The earth's girdle, the world serpent again, the earth's girdle gapes over heaven. The dread serpent's jaws yawn on high. Odin's sons must meet the serpent. That is Thor in some traditions. Thor is Odin's son. And when the wolf is dead, and Vidar's kin, so the wolf and Odin are all dead. Then there comes the famous offspring of Hloden, that is Thor. Odin's son goes to fight the serpent. The defender of Middle-earth strikes in his wrath, the defender of Middle-earth being Thor. All warriors must abandon their homesteads. He goes nine paces, the son of Fjorgen, that is Thor again, and spent from the snake that fears no spite. The sun turns black, land sinks into sea, the bright stars scatter from the sky, flame flickers up against the world tree, fire flies high against itself. Garm now howls loud before looming cave, the bond will break, and the ravenous one run, much lore she knows, I see further ahead of the power's fate implacable of the victory gods. She sees rising up a second time, this is after the world has ended, and she sees rising up a second time the earth from the ocean, again evergreen, the cataracts tumble, an eagle flies above, hunting fish along the fell. We're almost done here, but I would think that stanza is worth a second read. That just gives me the chills. Um, everything has gone under in fire and been sunk in the ocean. But what happens at the end? She sees rising up a second time the earth from the ocean, evergreen. The cataracts tumble, 
An eagle flies above, hunting fish along the fell. The Aesir come together on action field, and pass judgment on the powerful earth coil, the world serpent, and commemorate there the mighty events and the ancient runes of potent god, which is Odin. Afterwards there will be found wondrous golden gaming pieces in the grass, those which in ancient days they had owned. All unsown the fields will grow, all harm will be healed and Balder will come, Hod and Balder will inhabit Hropt's victory halls, Hropt being Odin. They will inhabit Odin's victory halls, sanctuaries of the slain gods. And for the last time, or the second last time, do you know yet, or what? Then Honair shall choose the wooden lots, and the sons of two brothers will build dwellings in the, in the wide wind home. And for the last time, do you know yet, or what? She sees a hall standing more beautiful than the sun, better than gold at Gimle. Virtuous folk shall live there, and enjoy pleasure the live-long day. And then there comes the mighty one down from above, the strong one who governs everything to powerfulness. Then there comes there the dark dragon flying, the glittering snake up from Moonwane Hills. It bears in its wings and flies over the plain, dead bodies. Spite striker, and now she must sink. Hmm. Two stanzas there I'll read again, because that is the end. Spite striker, now she must sink. All unsown, this is the, the remade world. All unsown, the fields will grow. All harm will be healed, and Balder will come. Hod and Balder, Hod being the murderer of Balder in the story, will inhabit Odin's victory halls, sanctuaries of the slain gods. Do you know yet, or what? Then Honir shall choose the wooden lots, and the sons of two brothers build dwellings in the wide wind home. Do you know yet, or what? Is there anything else like this in the world where you can begin uh, creation with the dismemberment of a giant's body that the world is made from, that you can uh, go through a catalog of all of these stories of tremendous violence and, uh, and a sense of fate and doom that nothing will ever turn out right. And then you get to the actual moment of the end of the world, of Ragnarok, where everything goes under. Um, it's the, the blood feud to end all blood feuds. The giants, the gods, uh, Odin is uh, killed by a wolf. His son avenges him, but everybody goes down. But then suddenly, out of the water again, comes the land, and it doesn't seem forced, and, and we buy it. Um, all unsown, the fields will grow, all harm will be healed, and the great uh, prototypical enemies from one of the last stories will sit in the field and play their game and sit in the halls of the slain god.
and things will be okay and they will cast lots and they will play games they will play their board games do you know yet or what um, this is one of the great things in the world um, and I think that you could uh, take any of the reference books I mentioned and spend a good week or a good month or indeed if you just want to learn the language and uh, spend even years or the rest of your life with this, you would uh, not be wasting your time. And so I hope this inaugurates the next year or so of getting into these great Norse myths. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this episode, please click on the link in the post description where you can learn about different ways of supporting this podcast. You can also support this podcast by going to wordandsilence.com, where you can buy copies of my two books of poetry, To the House of the Sun and Bone Antler Stone, as well as a collection of short stories, The Lonely Young and The Lonely Old. And as always, thank you for listening. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.